Hello and welcome back to the J-Rod Sports Pod after a fantastic weekend of live sport. So today we're going to be taking a look back over some of the Premier League stuff that's happened, some Formula One with our special guest host Sam Corti, some of the changes that might be happening in American sports and lastly we're throwing a new sport in there that we haven't covered before. So let's jump straight into the conversation that Ollie and I had about the different sport that's happened over the last couple of days. Okay, so right, Ollie, let's start talking about the football results from this weekend. And let's start with the biggest game of the weekend, arguably, Arsenal-Wolves. Arsenal managed to come out of it 2-0 up. Finally on the right side of some of the teams in you know surrounding them in the table and being above... You know, Burnley, Sheffield, and Spurs is really important for Arsenal at the moment. I mean, how how did you think the game played out, and what were your sort of takeaways from it? Uh, I mean, it was a bit of a surprise for me, if I'm being honest. I really thought that you know Wolves would be really up for this kind of game, and actually, it was not as an Arsenal fan I am, but I'm sure as Arsenal fans, it was actually quite reassuring that. You know, Wolves has been one of the more exciting teams in the league this year, and for Arsenal to go and actually, obviously both teams have chances, but to be the more dominant team was was encouraging, I think. And also, like Wolves, are a team that they're they're notorious for getting really good results against good sides, and then dropping points against sort of bottom half of the league teams where that they should be beating. Yeah, exactly. That top six, they are usually like right on the money. Yeah, and so for for me, it was it was a good, it was a nice way for us to go in there and and put together a good performance against a team that we know would turn up. Um, I mean, the the sort of ramifications into the into the league, Wolves are still three points ahead, um, but they could have been seven. Uh, you know, yeah, that's the biggest takeaway, I think. Yeah, it's a sort of missed missed opportunity and a bit of a missed, you know, an open goal for for Wolves that they didn't convert on. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like, had they won, it would have been seven points back to I think it's Sheffield United, and that would have been massive for them to then actually they could focus on, you know, trying to get some kind of. Um, Champions League football potentially whereas now they kind of seem to be out of that fight and trying to avoid getting dragged into any kind of battle with Europa League football instead of just having definite Europa League football Do you think that uh, like the possibility of Europa League football next year is going to be enough for Wolves to keep hold of their key players? I think so yeah I think it will be enough as, as a bit of a like in negotiations, it might be a bit like, look, don't go this year. Give us another year. Like, we've improved every year on year, like, so far. Give us one more year. And then if it doesn't work out, look, to players like Traore or, you know, Ruben Neves, those those big-time players that are the ones that are, like, attracted to um, those bigger clubs, like, I think that's like if they can keep hold of them, that's going to be absolutely massive for them. Yeah, I mean those those players need and deserve to be playing in in big time games, and Europa League is is good, but it's probably not where they see themselves as 
deserving to play. So I think it I think it will be a bit of a challenge for Wolves to keep hold of it, but they're also quite good at doing a lot with a little, if that makes sense. And do you think yeah. They they'll I I reckon even if they have a even if they do lose one or two, they'll still be sort of formidable opponents next year. Do you think um how far they go in this year's Europa League will will make a difference or um I think it I think it might but I think uh, I don't think they're going to win it and I don't yeah. think they're going to get to the final I think it's just yeah. uh, but I think it it creates the atmosphere in the club that we're not far away from being in those big games and the deeper that they get into it the more they're going to believe that and that that's only going to foster good things for for that for that club and that environment like you look at you look at the clubs that are always there why are they always there because they've had they've got so much history and experience of playing in those massive games yeah and it's it's hard for a team to break into that area and that sort of upper echelon of teams and you have to have a couple you know kind of like we discussed with the NBA in the past like you've got to have a couple of experiences of coming up short and this might be one of those opportunities that can be a sort of character forging experience for Wolves. 100%. I mean, like the, at the moment, the, they drew 1-1 away at Olympiakos in the second, in the round of 16, sorry, uh, in the Europa League. And obviously the second leg was postponed, like we spoke about with everything that happened with COVID. So actually, and there's some still like pretty big teams in there, like uh, Inter Milan, uh, Roma, Sevilla, uh, Sevilla. Like, if they can somehow get like a a game against a team like that, and players can be like, okay, right, like we might not win this, but these are the types of teams that we're going to start playing now. Like, I think that that is that is huge for a club like Wolves to kind of make this a bit more of a like regularity. And sort of talking about talking about one uh, you know teams that have been in that upper half of the Premier League you know let's let's start looking at the other end of it now because Brighton and Norwich which was I mean Brighton won one nil it was a game that painful to watch yeah you and I (laughs) you and I were sat on the sofa struggling to keep our eyes open for a bit of it and and but but equally for those teams massive massive implications and it's I mean. I, w- I I struggle to say a really good result for Brighton, but it was a needed result for Brighton, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, like we we've, we've we've mentioned a few times now that we're the later this season goes on, the more games that have these like big implications to them, and and this was certainly one of them. You know, you like okay, so Brighton win this, which means actually they kind of separate themselves from a bit of a relegation battle. Like it, I think it's five points now back to West Ham. Whereas actually, if if they don't win that and Norwich do, then actually Norwich might get a bit of confidence and oh, there's still hope potentially, um, and and a draw would have been an awful result for both teams, I think. So actually, for Brighton fans, I think I think they're pretty happy with this. Um, I suppose I have to ask with Norwich. I think neither of us were confident of any kind of escape plan or great escape occurring, but. Do you think it's a bit of a foregone conclusion now? Yeah, I mean this was the this was the final nail in the coffin, I think. I mean if you're if you're not able to get points on teams that are around you, 
then there's no you don't have much of a hope of moving up in in the league and i think the other thing was that it was it was not a particularly dynamic game i mean there were three shots on target in the entire thing norwich had one of them brighton only had two but i mean they managed to convert one of those into a goal it was yeah it was a game for for the purists to watch and marvel at two teams battling it out for sort of the scraps of trying to stay in the premier league yeah i yeah i think it, it, until until that you're able to play that sort of you look at the way that everything in the premier league is trending it's trending towards exciting dynamic fast um you know offensive play and, and yeah <laughs> there's no, there was literally none of that in that entire game it was very scrappy and so yeah it, it looked it looked like a bottom of the table clash and uh someone someone managed to get some points out of it which is great for brighton but yeah i think uh we're gonna have to sadly say goodbye to delia smith and norwich and and let them go down to the championship yeah i think as a brighton fan like obviously uh, you're not safe yet but you're more safe than you were and that's definitely a relief and i think if they do stay up that will be a massive relief but i think there has to be some big changes at brighton if they think that next year is going to be any different yeah because if you take out the sort of fast-paced start that they had to the season they yeah. they you know for the, for the majority of the season they have not been competitive yeah so, it's been pretty dire yeah so I, I don't know whether Eddie Howe's got to go I just think that there needs to be I think there needs to be a culture change and that's that's something that's so hard to effect as a coach but yeah it, it is something you know so maybe you need to sign players that potentially aren't going to be the best people to have around from a purely winning football game standpoint you know they're probably not going to yeah. have the same output as as some other players but they're going to create the right atmosphere for the younger guys to to learn and grow and and take on new responsibilities i mean you look at like city city have got this amazing you know they've got this core group of guys who have been there for ages and they bring in this unbelievable young talent who flourish in that environment because they feel safe and secure to take the risks, take the chances and learn from their mistakes. And with a team like Brighton, it, it seems like their mistakes are being punished by other teams and no one's standing up saying, you know, keep doing what you're doing to the younger guys because, you know, that's costing them vi vital and valuable points. Yeah, no, I agree. So looking at from one or from two teams that have struggled to make the step up into the Premier League to actually two teams that I would call like established Premier League teams now in uh, Leicester and Crystal Palace. Uh, Leicester victorious, uh, three nil winners against uh, at home to Palace. Um, for me, this was again like a, a game of quite big implications still. You're talking about a Leicester team that actually any drop points could result in not having Champions League football and actually for Palace for me it was kind of the end of their season a little bit yeah I mean Leicester are in that weird position where they've got that little cushion you know are they safe probably not they need to 
it's the the old adage, you know, destiny. Their their fate's in their own hands. Really, they've got to control it from there. They're in the driving seat, and if they can make sure that they don't drop points, then they'll be fine. Um, but they have to feel everyone breathing down their neck to try and you know come back yeah, at them. No, yeah. I thought I thought it was I thought it was a good win. Um, and and an, a necessary win, yeah. For Palace, probably is the end of their season. Not the end of their season, but it was an opportunity to mark, you know, this post-quarantine uh, sort of spate of games as uh, as something that was something to build on for next year. It could have been a big result for them to get points on Leicester and then go, okay, right now we're building something for next year. Whereas it's now seen as part of the you know, rebuild for next year, if that makes sense. Like that, that's okay. It, this is the kind of end of any hopes that we've got of moving from where we are. And we're now just going to start looking into next season and addressing issues that need to be addressed. I mean, obviously, yeah. Ollie, like, how do they make that next step? How do they make up that in, next step? into, yeah, like Palace, how do they make that next step into, you know, they're kind of established themselves as a Premier League team now. Like, not really involved in any relegation battles how do they make that next step to like contending for Europe and not just staying as a, a middle of the pack team I think it's it's difficult because you you want to say something more than just you know investing in, in better players but at the end of the day every team that's coming up and and being real contenders for Europe has that one or two players who you can turn to in those big moments and just rely on them to pull something out of the bag. And Palace yeah. Palace seems like a team that needs that. It seems like a team that could really use that one focal point or that one or two, you know, not stars, but, you know, shining lights who could carry them when when moments got tough. And I think that's something that they they might need to address and it, it's it's something that's not easy to address and it's obviously every fan's like well why don't we all just go out and sign Lionel Messi he's obviously unhappy at Barcelona at the moment apparently but you know <laughs> yeah I think the big thing for me was was Zaha yeah um like there's always been a lot of hype around Zaha and like you know, deserved, of course, for a lot of the time. But actually, this year, he's he's not really produced on the scoring front. And, like, I think most people, when they think of Palace, they think of Zaha as someone who can potentially carry them. But he's just not, like, performed and produced on that end. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And, that, and that's what I mean, like, in some ways, if, if you, when you turn to someone like... Zaha in those moments and they don't produce that sort of spark that you need do you then say right well it's time to move on to someone who can fulfill that role because that that is something that is so is so key nowadays but Oli I've got I've got to ask I've got to ask you about Leicester now because you you know you're from Leicester and obviously Leicester is is in a slightly different situation from a coronavirus standpoint than the than the rest of the country, being in in a sort of lockdown um, at the moment, 
what what is Leicester looking you know are they going to be playing games at home what's going to be happening for them there well so at the moment like Leicester if you looked on a map of what the government have released there's a little red line basically going round most of Leicester and Leicestershire um, and they've also had um, police on like main entry and exit roads uh, in and around Leicester um, basically stopping cars and, and asking them like look like where are you going or why are you coming into Leicester where have you been questions like that so actually it's it's pretty strict and they've probably gone not just back one stage but in some circumstances gone back like two stages when it comes to the lockdown protocols um, this all stems from a mass outbreak basically mainly in the centre of Leicester um, and there were a, a lot of reported cases in the Walkers factory um, which obviously Leicester used to be sponsored by uh, Walkers um, but the Premier League and the government have allowed them to continue playing their games at the King Power Stadium um, under quite strict regulations like I think we were all taking it quite seriously before but now they're they're kind of taking it to the next level like limited um, media and press allowed in and and obviously still still no kind of fans uh, allowed in but I think the interesting thing for Leicester players will be like how do they adapt to like life at home like completely changes their their lifestyle again which is difficult yeah. and it, it's especially in a situation where the rest of the country almost feels like they're through the worst of it and coming out of it and pubs are opening up and and things like that and then you're suddenly in the one place in the country that is isn't in that situation which makes it all the more annoying to be honest um yeah yeah but anyway i mean but leicester you know as we've said in third place but you know, being chased down by a very in-form United team, aren't they? Who managed to uh, nail Bournemouth 5-2 this weekend in, in quite dramatic, not dramatic, but conclusive fashion. Yeah, I mean, like all throughout uh, social media, there's, uh, there's talks of, um, you know, is that Man United front three of, um, like on the same level or even I think they've scored more goals than the 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 famous Liverpool front three um so like they're they're well on their way to being quite formidable and actually like you said like United for me are are easily the informed team in the Premier League and you know Bournemouth's first goal well the first goal of the game by Stanislas was a wonderful turn um you wouldn't have paid eight million for Maguire had that been the only clip that you saw of his defending never mind 80 um but ultimately like Man U did did prevail and, and that's the Man United of old that like they actually can get results from from what seemed to be tough games and and for me, there's still questions about that back four. Like I said, like Maguire, um, there just seems to be a few too many moments of inconsistency and not that reassuring. But and you know, obviously, there's a lot of hope for them going forward with the Champions League. You'd have to, you'd expect that they are somehow. For me, you'd, I expect that they're somehow going to make it into those Champions League places. Yeah, no, I do. I think we've seen Chelsea slip up 
and whilst I like Chelsea and I I just can't see Leicester or Chelsea winning out completely and 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 run the floor um and whereas I think Man United actually potentially could but I if I'm being honest my biggest concern when I look at this game is is Bournemouth yeah I mean they no points from their game since return and this could well be another nail in the coffin for them really couldn't it yeah 100% I mean their remaining games are against Spurs Leicester Man City Southampton and Everton Um, and you know they are all very very tough games Um, I I suppose the game uh, there's two games that Man United all want to look forward to one for for your sake, maybe that penultimate game against West Ham is a big game for you, obviously. Um, but uh, ultimately, that last game of the year against Leicester could could be what it all comes down to. Yeah, I think. I think for for United anyway. Yeah, I think Leicester, that United Leicester game is going to be massive, and I think it's going to be massive because Leicester have something to fight for. They have to fight to stay ahead. So it's again, it comes down to the fact that we might have two teams that are one team that's in in the Champions League places. Well, at the moment, one team that's in the Champions League places, and the other team that is trying hard to get in there. And that could come down to the last day of the season, which is, I mean, which is so exciting, so exciting. And especially when you look at who, and we'll come on to them in a minute. But Chelsea, you know, they've got not the last gate. Oh, well, they've got Liverpool and Wolves to finish off their season. Those are two places where they could potentially drop points, and it it depends sort of what Liverpool shows up. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I've got to echo what I, what you said earlier about the back four for for United. I mean, conceding two against Bournemouth is probably a red flag because not exactly the most potent attacking team in the in the in the league. And yes, the first one was a was a very good strike, but. Should you be, if you're if you're trying to win, if you're trying to get into the Champions League, should you really be conceding two two goals against Bournemouth? And can you rely on that front three to score more goals than your opponent score on a leaky back four? Yeah, and I mean, I think like we looked at Liverpool of of not last year, but the year before, when actually that front three of of Salah, Firmino. And Mane was probably at their most potent, and they were just scoring for fun, and it was literally just a matter of, right? Well, Liverpool had Carrius in goal, I think, then, and you know, simply could they outscore the other team? And you know, that game for Man U against Bournemouth there was was probably a bit similar to that, where they, you know, okay, we'll we'll just allow teams to that are second bottom from the league or something like that that can score two against them because we back ourselves to score more than two um, which I think is a dangerous game to play yeah and then like looking below United we I mean Chelsea got Chelsea won 3-0 to, against Watford you know good to get back on the sort of winning foot for Chelsea it was a lot more convincing though wasn't it than, than previous games yeah I it, I had a look back throughout all of um, Chelsea's results, and I think like 
only once have they lost back-to-back games like including all cups and everything like that this year and I think that you know speaks volumes as to the kind of attitude that Lampard seems to have in that dressing room that it's a bit like okay like we're not going to get let any bad form kind of sneak in here we're going to really okay if we miss out or have a bad result then we're going to come back and and really make sure that we we you know get back to winning ways and and that seemed how they did I mean for me again like like you mentioned those last two games Liverpool and Wolves and potentially Sheffield United actually um are quite tough games for Chelsea and and you know, when we compare the remaining games for Leicester and Man U, that they, they definitely do have the tougher remaining schedule, and so I think they will have to make sure that, in my eyes, they they win the rest of their games to make sure that they guarantee a Champions League position. Yeah, I completely agree. The only thing that I would say is that that Chelsea team seems to have, you know, with that game against City the other day, they seem to have a knack for turning up in the big moments and and get kind of getting the job done, much like. Frank Lampard used to be, you know, he used to be Mr. Mr. Reliable. And and so I think they do have to win all their games, but I back them to do that because I think Liverpool at that point, you know, will probably be in a place where, yeah, they might not be able to get 100 points and, and it might be a difficult sort of time for them to finish this season as champions but not playing their best football and then a Wolves team whose potentially you know spirits might have been cracked if they'd been overtaken uh but what what I mean what do we think for Watford because their their run-in almost looks you know impossible for them to find points anywhere yeah I'm yeah like I suppose you look at them now and um, they're, they're on 28 points and, and, and outside of the relegation zone at the moment in front, one point in front of Villa and Bournemouth and, and three points back from West Ham. And if I'm being honest with you, if they're going to stay up this year, the next three games are the most important. I could almost write off those last two games against Man City and Arsenal. And expect they've got Norwich next week. They've got Norwich, West Ham, and then Newcastle. Yeah. So Norwich, let it, I mean, if we if we give them that and assume that they then run into what seems to be a West Ham team that can't drop points or well, yeah. can't lose, um, and and have come back red hot. And then you go into Newcastle, who equally, you know, I mean, they drew with West Ham two two, and. That was a, you know, an okay result for Newcastle and a great result for West Ham. But yeah, you're right. If Watford do want to stay up, Norwich, West Ham, and Newcastle all need to be at at the very minimum six two, points. Yeah, six points. Yeah, two wins, maybe, maybe a win and two draws, and you're thinking, mm, okay, just about. Yeah, I think I think maybe five points you could push it to because. Actually, like we've spoken about, you know, Bournemouth's remaining games and it's not promising and Norwich aren't exactly... Like, we've written off Norwich and, and, you know, Villa, I don't think either of us have... Well, I know you don't have much confidence in them and, to be honest, watching them play Liverpool um, 
there isn't much confidence from there. So, you know, if I was allowed to jump ship, I'd probably want to jump from Villas to Watford or West Ham's, you know? Like, I, I do agree that Watford and West Ham do seem like the most likely teams to stay out of it. And if anyone's going to go and get a result at, at Norwich or Newcastle, and, you know, we've seen Watford play well against the top team sometimes, like, there's potential in there, but... Like I, I've never been so excited for a relegation battle. Like as to to who could potentially come out of this, and who 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 stays in the Premier League. Yeah, and I mean like again, you know, let's jump to that Newcastle West Ham game. Watford, Bournemouth, Villa, and Norwich all drop points, and so for West Ham to not fall into that trap against a Newcastle team who are decent. I mean, you know, yeah. they've yeah. got some good players there. I mean, at least at the very least, it can show West Ham that, you know, you're you. That's where you should be aiming to be, and that's where you that part of the uh, table is where you can be if you play the football that you think you can play. Um, I think if you look back at like West Ham's year, you say that they're in this position because they've massively underperformed rather than they are a team that actually you may be expected to be in this position. Yeah, but then, I mean, that that then bodes quite well for next year that, okay, this is a this is a last couple of games that we can really build on through the summer. And, you know, they, they seem like the team who have benefited the most from the quarantine. Yeah. Do you, do you think West Ham fans particularly... I mean, I wouldn't call you a West Ham fan, obviously, but as a low-knee West Ham fan, do you think West Ham fans are a bit tired of that kind of talk, though? You know, since, like, they were exciting when Payet was there and it was all oh, great and obviously they built the stadium and it was, this is going to be a great place for European football and we haven't seen any European football there. And, you know, is it a bit of... With with West Ham, it, it seems to always be a lot of smoke and never a lot of fire. I think for the real long-term West Ham fans, yes. I think for for me, you know, driving <laughs> you excited about it, <laughs> driving the bandwagon. I'm I'm sort of more excited about the the gain in in places that they've managed to the, to pull off. I think at the end of the day, you can be frustrated by not being in the half of the table that you want to be but in the situation that you were in going into lockdown you cannot fault West Ham for how they've come out of it yeah. and you you've actually got to sit you I think as a West Ham fan you do have to sit there and go okay this is going to be an exciting next season because we could do something here yeah no no I agree um I mean a Liverpool 2-0 against Villa. I mean, I'm not going to say it was a surprise, but it was just good. It was good for Liverpool to get back on on the the winning foot again, wasn't it? Yeah, they definitely seemed less hungover um, versus versus Villa than they did against Man City, and I think actually, um, look, we we sometimes look at these games, I think, and it gets to, I think it was like 70 minutes, and it was still nil nil, and. That's those last twenty minutes are where you question whether teams can be champions or not, and obviously we know that Liverpool are now. But it's those games where you know there wasn't any panic late on. They kept trying to build 
like in the right way um, and once they got that first one I do think it was game over I think the big thing for me is the game showed the value of uh, Roberto Firmino um, you know you I think you, we often judge strikers on obviously goals and he isn't the most prolific striker but he came on and the link up play was just so much better there was flicks around the corner there was just a bit of pizzazz you know that kind of said right I, yeah exactly and it just he's so much he's so good at just linking that you know sometimes which can be a bit of a basic midfield to to that the, that front three yeah I mean I think yeah it, it was a result that Liverpool needed to steady the ship because yeah. after they won it seemed like a bit of an anti-climax Obviously not for for you as a Liverpool fan who's been waiting all your life for it, but for everyone else it was like really like it looks like anyone can beat them nowadays. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's difficult though. Like when you win the league so early, like it is it is hard to to kind of get yourself going again when you're like you know all you have to play for now is kind of records. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think. You know, it'll be interesting to see how they how they treat these last couple of games. Uh, I I don't uh, with uh, what I've seen so far. I don't think they'll get to a hundred points. Yeah, maybe. And I think I mean, that's, that's eleven a, points in five games. That, I mean, that is quite a pessimistic look at things, but yeah, yeah. you know, if they have. If they have one bad res- like one bad game now, they have to make sure they win everything else. Yeah. I'd ar- I'd argue that they can't they can't lose. Yeah, I mean they so they play Brighton next. Yeah, they play Brighton next, which you'd expect them to win. Then Burnley, and then they play Arsenal, then Chelsea, then Newcastle. So. Like, look, those Arsenal and Chelsea games are going to be definitely difficult games, and if they're going to drop points, you'd expect them to drop points there. Uh, yeah, and they're going to be they're going to be the as we've kind of alluded to over and over again. Like, those are two teams with a lot to play for. Yeah, exactly. And you just, I suppose, as a Liverpool fan, you just hope that they'll be over the hump a little bit, like, and hope that you know if they can. Obviously, they had that hump game against Man City, but then you know. If they can beat Villa and beat Brighton in convincing ways, then actually and Burnley, then actually uh, coming to those Arsenal and Chelsea games, then you'd hope that there'll be, you know, the quest for a hundred points is back on a little bit. Uh, so moving from one team that uh, wants to get a hundred points to a team that we already know has achieved it, Manchester City, uh, surprise of the week this game, do you think? Yeah, very much so. Um, and actually, yeah, I, I saw something funny on the BBC. It was, you know, Man City cannot draw games. They just <laughs> yeah. can't do it. They either win or lose. And and it's, you know, they've lost as many as Sheffield and more than United and Arsenal. So it shows you that when they, when they win, you know, when they're on form, they are formidable. Yeah, but yeah. when they have an off day, it is an off day. Um, yeah, just dis- I think disappointing, disappointing for a team that looked so 
dominant and in control against Liverpool to then come out and lose to Southampton. I mean, no disrespect to Southampton, but they are not Premier League champions. No. Um, and so potentially, like, you were looking at our own, like, mini come down. You know, Man City probably would have been well up for that Liverpool game, um, you know, to prove a bit of a point and then actually kind of let themselves down a little bit with a result like that against Southampton. Yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and I think it's... But again, they're, they're, they've got something to play for, but not too much. Like, we've we've kind of nailed them on for second place already. And yeah. I'd be so surprised if that wasn't the case. Yeah, they should be fine. Uh, and I guess the big the big game uh, that we've got to look forward to tomorrow, um, Arsenal Leicester, to on Tuesday tomorrow night. That's going to be a massive game. I mean, that's yeah. going to be absolutely huge. I mean, like like we said, the exciting thing now is that almost every game means something, which is you know, a position that we've not been in for a while. And look, it, if Leicester drop any points there, you like, like, like we said, like, you, that's that could be game over almost. Like, once you let a team like Man U in or Chelsea, like, are they the kind of team that then, you know, to bring back some famous words from a Liverpool fan, but do they let it slip? I, this is this is going to be really telling for how our season goes, and I think I I feel a lot more confident with the Wolves' result behind us. Yeah, because that's a team that we uh, that's a team that should have been a test, and we dealt with it well uh, for once. And so, can we? You know, can lightning strike twice? We shall wait and see. <laughs> it's exciting for an Arsenal fan once. Um, and then something to note, something to note as well. Obviously, by the time the pod comes out, um, this game will have been played. But the Tottenham Everton game, like we can talk about the potential, you know, as to what potentially like happens, is that actually Tottenham at the moment on forty five points, four points behind Arsenal, and Everton on forty four points, uh, five points behind Arsenal. Actually, both teams are in a position where. The worst result for both teams would be a draw. I yeah. think I think because it gets neither of them anywhere. But actually a a win for either team, you know, really keeps them in that, that fight for some European football. And they are could you imagine like at the end of the season turning around and saying actually both Jose Mourinho and Carlo Ancelotti won't be playing European football uh next year, which is which is a huge thing to say. Yeah, I think if you asked me that, uh before the start of the season, I would have said, "No, no way." But looking at looking at the table the way it is now, I think it very well could happen. And and I think, yeah, as you said, the worst result would be a draw. And you know, you've got those teams there that are trying to stay out of the uh, relegation battle: your Crystal Palace, your Southampton, your Newcastle. You know, you've got to you got to try. If you're Spurs and Everton, tonight is important because, it, you know, tenth or eleventh is a hell of a lot better than fourteenth. And yeah, yeah, you you don't want to be slipping up and and leaving the door open. You've got you've got a game in hand. It you now need to capitalise on it. Yeah, no, I agree. But also, and something to note on as well, which is, I don't know if it's just a Liverpool fan, so you look for these kind of things, but. 
So Liverpool have 89 points at the moment. Obviously, Tottenham and Everton have a game in hand, but you're looking at like half the amount of points, um, which to, to me just is, is massive. Like two years ago, I would have never thought that Everton or Tottenham would ever have half the amount of points that Liverpool had in the league with like still games to play. Yeah, and I think that's as much of a sign as of Liverpool's dominance as it is of uh, the woes uh, of Spurs and, and Everton. Yeah, um, I agree. You know, actually, if you think that, what are they, Everton are 13 points behind fourth, you go, hmm, okay. Yeah, not that's, <laughs> that's, not, that's, not, that's not awful. But then if you think that they are 45 points behind you know, first place that is quite outrageous. Yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah I think uh, I'm not sure whether you asked that question for me to blow smoke up the arse of of all Liverpool fans, but yeah. I just wanted to bring it up to be honest. <laughs> the number one team in in Liverpool right now. Yeah, and especially all those Merseyside fans. Listen. <laughs> Right, so let's jump. Let's jump to the other side of the Atlantic now, with with some slightly more. Uh, what's the right word? It's uh, slightly more. It's just more current, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, cu- current and sensitive uh, news. Washington, the Washington NFL team, have decided to conduct a serious investigate. Not investigation, but. Uh, Review review of of their name and whether they will change their name. Uh, Ollie, you've looked in, in a bit into sort of how this review has come about. So, do you want to tell us sort of how has this happened? Because this is not this is not Washington's ownership standing up and saying we're going to change this now. They've kind of been their their hands been forced, hasn't they? Yeah, I mean, like as we've all seen on on the news and on social media, a lot of protests uh, have taken place since the um, horrific murder of George Floyd, and um, sponsors and investors in sports teams are looking to make changes in the world, um, and and hopefully these changes go a bit further than perhaps performative ones um, than perhaps a name change but hopefully yeah like it stems to a bit more than that but ultimately when it comes to uh, this Washington NFL team the pressure has come from sponsors to change the name uh, the team's names uh, the team's name as uh, FedEx who have sponsored Washington's um, home stadium since 1999 requested that the nickname be changed Reports also say a group of investors asked Nike, FedEx and Pepsi to end their business relationship with Washington unless the team agreed to change its name. Um, and so in response to that, obviously, we've had no name change at the moment, um, but Nike has removed all of its Washington team merchandise from its online store. Which, which is... It's a message. Yeah, that is quite a big... Uh, big power play by Nike there, throwing their sort of weight behind it and saying, no, it is it is time that this changed. Um, 
the other thing to, to note is that FedEx's owner, Fred Smith, is a mi- minority owner in the NFL franchise in Washington and is reportedly looking to sell his stake in the organization because of this. Yeah, and I think the relationship that he has with uh, the majority owner, Dan Schneider, is a bit of a, a tentative, tentative one. And I think Schneider's reluctancy to perhaps be all in in the name change is a bit... I think like, like Schneider's come out and says like, you know, okay, yeah, name change maybe, but we'd like to keep the logo and the team colours and then everything like that, which is actually kind of suggests that he's not really perhaps on the same page as, as everyone else in, in, in the reasons as to why um, the team need needs to be changed. And so we've made quite a conscious choice so far not to mention the name. And I feel like in this next part, we we kind of have to to highlight how inappropriate it is. Yeah. So why is the the name, you know, the Washington Redskins such a uh uh an unsuitable name for a an NFL team? Uh so I guess like we've all kind of said that education is is a massive part when it comes to uh moving forward uh in society and ultimately the the term redskin was used as a derogatory term when uh, the British Empire colonised the the US predominantly Christian colonisers categorised themselves as being white uh, slaves as black um, and Native Americans as red uh, which transformed into uh, redskins and, and as you can kind of tell that has a history of being a a really derogatory racial slur and in no way like honours the Native Americans which the people who are against the name like the name change argue they suggest that actually the name is there as a bit of a yeah some kind of honorary mention to to Native Americans yeah and, and this has been something that has has been on the on the cards for a while this name change like there's been a lot of publicity about about how you know how outdated it is and and how inappropriate it is um for a while now and and i feel like everyone is taking the attitude of better late than never with with this and and it's a it if there was ever a moment for washington to do it it should have been a long time ago but at least they're thinking about doing it now and at least they are entertaining the possibility i I hope they they do it before before this next season. I mean, primarily for Washington as a as as the team, it, it's it, that's got to be something that's disruptive to a purely foot you know American football side of things is is having that hanging over your you know ha- having that decision still up in the air, um, but also from a business side. Without them being on Nike's website, they won't have any merchandise being able to be sold. So uh, that's why I think it's such a power move from Nike to kind of force Dan Snyder's hand. And it, it's it's a, an example of large corporations that we often dismiss as being greedy and 
only focused on their profits, actually making quite significant calls for social change. And and it's a it's an example that many other companies and and corporations should follow. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I mean, like, but Washington haven't been the only one. Cleveland's uh, MLB team has has responded to the protests and the fight for equality. And you know, Washington saying that they would conduct an investigate uh, a review of their name. Uh, they've said that it's time for the Cleveland baseball team to change its name too. They're called, they're known as the um, Cleveland Indians. They have removed uh, Chief Wahoo from the, the sort of Chief Wahoo logo from the team, as it was a racist caricature of a Native American character. In the past, it was the argument against it was that. Um, it was never trying to be disrespectful, but that really isn't good enough anymore, is it? No, no, and and I think that you know, so they removed the the uh, the logo in twenty eighteen, and that kind of, and that was a long time coming as well, and that kind of just speaks to how long this has been, you know, relevant in American sports, um, and perhaps how long these name changes have been needing to have changed um and and you know the to have people like the the uh the cleveland uh, baseball team the manager come out and say look it's time for the name change um for when we talk about the washington uh nfl team to have ron rivera who's who's the head coach come out and be like look you know there are some options that we that we do like and which obviously you have to understand is a business decision as well um the fear for me is uh, and and I agree with you that I hope it does happen before the start of the season but I it wouldn't surprise me if it didn't just because you know ultimately there are these are you know rich white men who who want it to be their way and Actually, if it's a team name and a color change and a logo change, like they're gonna want to use the excuse that this isn't something that they can, you know, dive into and and not really consider and like sit on for a little bit, you know, and so that's a difficult kind of thing to try and be understanding with. I think I think the difficult thing for I th- I think the thing that's gonna be interesting is I think if they don't change the name the backlash will be you know very widespread yeah i mean it will be huge and and so from a from a a a younger person's perspective you know you're thinking you i mean you've uh, there's no reason not to you've absolutely got to this this has to this has to be different we have to make a change here but um you know unfortunately I think that the people who are making the decisions and are in those positions of power are potentially slightly less in touch with sentiments of of yeah a little bit stuck in their ways yeah what seems to be a majority but I mean okay so let's now table that discussion somewhat and, and move on to news that has come out in the NFL regarding the sports side of it the NFLPA voted. Uh, last week that they did not want any preseason games this is primarily because of 
coronavirus numbers and a shortened training camp, which leads them to believe that going into full contact, you know, game scenarios is, is not going to be particularly safe for the players early on. Um, preseason is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's it's not a really a massive thing for for the the star players, the people that the household names, but it is really really important for the people who are lower down the roster fighting for a roster spot but also people who are sort of trying to get good film out there because they'll probably be cut from this team but might be able to be picked up by another team yeah i mean i think it's a very strange process that uh nfl fans go through you know you you look forward to that preseason start because you're like football is back like this is great oh my gosh you watch the first quarter and you're like ah, i can i can wait another two three weeks until the regular season actually starts because it's the like you said it, it's it's third fourth string kind of players and it's so it's not good quality it's not that exciting they're usually you know not great games so it's a bit like people just kind of go through the motions um and and so it yeah it, it's it's unfortunate for the so the end they've they've reduced uh, practice squad numbers from from 90 to 80 so it's unfortunate for those remaining like 28 players that will ultimately miss out like that they actually that they don't get this kind of opportunity to to prove their worth their worth and actually it's going to be quite difficult for them to to have a bit of a resume going um going forward into potential negotiations with other teams yeah and, and also with the with the sort of the folding of the XFL over this quarantine and, and the repeated efforts to get a, a sort of feeder league or a secondary league going with those coming up short, it, it does make it very different, difficult for those guys on the fringes to to make that impact and to get that uh, that film out there for teams to look at, analyse and go, you know what, this person might have a space in our in our team. Do you think... Um, and obviously we'll touch on the on the Formula One in a, in a bit, but do you think that this could potentially lead to a bit of a similar trend like we saw saw in the Formula One? I think like only eleven cars finished the Formula One out of twenty because actually they just there were so many injury like well not injuries but like problems with cars and actually could you potentially see that happening in the NFL? You know like no preseason no preseason games no full contact actually you're just going straight from like practice squad and training camps to full contact games high speed actually we're going to look at those first few games of the regular season are going to be you know pretty ropey i think i think it's going to go i think it's going to be quite i don't know where the split will be but it'll be quite neatly split i think the younger guys will struggle. I think they will. They will really find it difficult to get back up to going at full speed. That's where I think you might see the injuries are guys who have had potentially quite a while, not in the same rhythm that they're used to. I mean, you know, especially these rookies that are coming in or these younger guys that are second year, third year guys. Most of their lives have been dictated by when they were allowed to play football and when they were playing football. Now they've had three and a half months where they haven't, or four months where they haven't had to do anything. They haven't been told what to do. Yeah, yeah. they've had Zoom calls, but like some teams haven't done it. 
I think um, the older the older vets would have been more appreciative of the time off and it, they would have used it to sort of recover a bit better. Yeah, and I I saw something Kyler Murray, the quarterback of the Arizona Cardinals, he paid forty grand, which to him probably isn't that much, but to put all of the uh, Arizona Cardinals offense up in lodges and. They had their own like football field basically, and they did their own little kind of training camp. Um, and I and I think that look, like obviously he he was only a rookie last year, but that that just shows the message for them that like they're going out there and they really want to be firing on all cylinders, especially if you're not getting any preseason games. Like familiarity with with uh, offensive coordinators and plans and 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 programs will be massive. The last thing I want to talk about before we get to the F1, and we're, we're going to bring Sam in to help us with, with the F1 uh, in a minute. Bryson DeChambeau has won the Rocket Mortgage Classic in Detroit. And albeit not a big competition. Albeit not a big competition, but I think the reason that we're putting this in here as, as some quite serious news is the transformation that Bryson has undergone over lockdown. He has put on He's packed on 20 kilos. I mean, this report says muscle in nine months, but his build suggests maybe a little less of it is muscle. But, I mean, anybody who knows 20 kilos is is a fair amount of weight, and he's just absolutely packed it on and is a bit of a monster now. Yeah, I mean, he, he was averaging 350 yards off the tee this week, which is, I mean unbelievable but the thing that all golf analysts and commentators have been have been saying which is so incredible is that actually his accuracy has not gone down he oh, yeah, I mean, he's oh, dropped yeah. he's dropped from 65 to 61 percent of fairway hits which really isn't that much but what made him win what what what's come back and made him win this weekend compared to the first couple of weeks on tour where he was still hitting the ball as far I mean, he hit one 420 yards. I mean, it bounced off the car path a couple of times. <laughs> the fact that he, he's hit it that far, I mean, that's like long drive numbers, long yeah. drive competition numbers. But what he's what's, what he's been able to do this weekend, which has been so impressive, is also get his putter going and and really work round the greens well. Because it's one thing to be able to hit it, you know, four and a half miles. It's another thing to then do the last... Uh, 50 yards in a in a controlled and and efficient well, th- fashion yeah. which is which is something that uh, a lot of people struggle with i think that's why we haven't seen like any of these like big drive like competition guys actually then make the step to the what well, to the pga tour because actually they struggle with actually a lot of the you know smaller details when it comes to golf you know it's it's easy it's not easy because I can't do it so but it's (laughs) it it's you know relatively easy for someone who plays golf to kind of whack something quite far but to make sure it goes in the right direction that you don't cut it or you know completely slice it like you just completely that's that is difficult and not everyone can do it so to actually be able to do it 
and I, I I recommend anybody like go on YouTube and and search for his new swing because this boy he he tilts all of his body weight onto one side and then just shifts like shifts all of it to another side and it just absolutely sends the ball flying like the the ball comes off the tee at about 191 miles an hour which is obscene and obviously before all of this we knew Bryson as a bit of a mathematical kind of guy didn't we like that's what he was kind of famous for in golf as to he took this mathematical approach to playing golf and actually this seems to be a bit of a change or a development of that yeah I mean he's now I think the other thing to stress and not getting too in depth in, into the sort of facts and figures of it but he's now hitting his he's now hitting with a five and a half degree driver which is five degrees less loft than most people have on their drivers i mean like a a ten and a half is standard for most amateurs some pros you know have a nine degree driver or a nine and a half degree driver but he's he's teeing off with something that's essentially a putter yeah i mean he's emphasizing that isn't he yeah and because he's hitting it so hard he's still able to get the height that he needs to get over obstacles in the way i mean some of the drives that he was doing on the par fives he was going over trees and i mean able to smash it beyond anyone else on tour i mean i was watching his final round earlier and there was a graphic of him coming down the 18th and his drive was 11 yards further than the nearest next person yeah and just by i mean by doing that you you turn what would be a you know, a, a seven iron and an eight iron into the pin into a pitching wedge. Yeah, and I think like the big thing for me that I noticed, and uh, perhaps listeners might not be a hundred percent sure why we've why this is such a big thing, but based on a round of eighteen holes, there's a, a rough statistic that he he gains just under two shots compared to what he used to be hitting his driver so you know say he usually goes around 18 holes in in 69 or 70 well that's now more like 67 68 which is when it comes to top tier golf a massive difference So Sam, we had a pretty action-packed weekend in the Formula One, didn't we? I mean, let's let's start with your driver of the day, and and I mean, let's extend this to driver of the weekend because I reckon I reckon one driver for me stands out to be to be someone who's who qualified strongly and raced well to a position that was potentially above where their car should have been. Yeah, um, so I've given driver of the day or driver of the weekend to Lando Norris. Um, he had a brilliant result in qualifying on Saturday um, with fourth, his, his highest placing. Um, he was then given a surprise on Sunday morning when Hamilton received a grid penalty. So he got moved up to third. Um, and on Sunday, it, was, it wasn't it was handed to him on a plate. Um, he had his battles throughout the race. 
including with his own teammate. Um, and then to top it all off, he had the final lap to try and get on the podium um, where he had to be within five seconds of of Lewis, who'd been given a five second pen- another penalty, five second penalty. And yeah, he put his foot down and, and he did it with, was it two hundredths of a second or something, two tenths of a second to spare? Um, so yes, that got him. That got him his first first podium finish in F one. So what are we? Yeah, and like looking back at, you know, you had science getting on the podium for McLaren in, in in quite dramatic fashion last year, uh, at the end of last year, and then they've come out of the blocks here with the podium in in, the first race of the of the season. You you've got to think that that uh, something that that's going on uh, McLaren is is working and and they're really turning around to be you know the team that did take Lewis to his first championships yeah they're definitely they're definitely heading in the right heading in the right direction again um and let's just hope let's just hope it continues the rest of the season okay Sam and what do we think the surprise of the day was a lot of points but what was your what was your biggest surprise uh, so the surprise of the day, I don't think it'll come as a surprise for most people, is I've given it to Ferrari and Charles Leclerc um, finishing second. And it was I'm going to say it's a very flattering result for them. Um, they didn't have very good qualifying. Um, we had Vettel out in Q2. Leclerc qualified in seventh. Um, and, I mean, there were... They're a very well-established team, so you could kind of bet that you would hope that their reliability in the car would be good on the on the Sunday. Um, but it really did just come down to some very clean driving. Um, Leclerc kept kept himself out of trouble. Um, we saw what happened to Vettel, who didn't keep himself out of trouble. Um, the Ferrari was one of the few cars to have no mechanical issues so the reliability is obviously there um once we saw the ferrari ferrari go on to the harder tire um in the latter start latter parts of the race and the car was on less fuel it was definitely a lot better um there seemed to be the, the driving ability of it seemed to be a lot better for them um and yeah Leclerc just did some really really smart driving and i don't think anyone would have expected expected to see a Ferrari finishing second on the podium on Sunday but hats off to him because he really did really did manage to get every ounce out of that car um and we never know because they're potentially there's been talk of some upgrades for the weekend um for the next race so doesn't look like it's gonna improve their straight line speed which is probably something that they do need to work on but we'll see see what see what happens and see if they can uh, they can improve a bit more yeah i i completely agree with you and i think that kind of feeds nicely into what what we're gonna uh we're gonna term as our con- concern of the day uh what was the one thing that that you saw that uh that was that was worrying to you i think i think the fact that we only had 11 cars finishing um, out of the 20 that started was... I mean, it's we have to look at it as though it's the first race of the season. Um, the cars haven't had 
the racing that they normally have it in July. Um, but the curbs on the track seem to be causing quite a few issues, and many of them were looking at different sensors that had obviously been rattled. Um, also, a lot of the issues were coming from engines supplied by Mercedes, so that's possibly something we need to keep an eye on as to the reliability of that of that engine. Um, we are back in Austria um, at the weekend, so the curbs will be exactly the same. Whether people have time to address those problems and fix them, we don't know. So we'd hope that we'd have more finishes next weekend. Um, it did add a lot of drama, but we want to see cars and the drama coming from racing rather than drama from cars dropping out. So, um, yeah, we'll have to see what happens there. Hopefully... Hopefully they can do something about it. They don't have to travel anywhere, so that's a bonus. We're not having teams losing time between places, so fingers crossed for a, for more finishes next weekend. Yeah. Okay, and Ollie, let's let's start going through some of like our uh, a couple of our favourite moments from the weekend. So, what Ollie, what was what was something that stuck out to you? So obviously we saw at the start the drivers showed their support towards the um, Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and not only emphasise their support to equality, but towards equity and ensuring that actually, okay, yes, we want to ensure that people get the same amount of opportunities, but actually these the amount of opportunities depend on um, people's needs and actually the environments that they live in and everything like that. And at the moment, Formula One is very much focused on, or has been, like, you know, people who can afford to drive carts and go karting and actually increasing the opportunities um, for for all races to be involved in Formula One in that way. Completely agree. And it was it was just great to see a, a sort of a unity throughout all of Formula One that there needs to be a change happening uh, throughout the sport, not just in at the, at the top tier, but all the way down. Uh, Sam, if if you could pick something else that that excited you for the season going ahead, what what would that be? Um, I think I think it was almost the surprise of how close the racing is behind Mercedes. Um, we talked in the in the podcasts that we filmed, um, about a week ago about saying how it's been very much you have the top three and then you have the middle order and then you have the teams at the bottom. Where I felt this this weekend really showed that yes mercedes are are out there and do have a very fast car but i mean we saw racing point up there um mclaren on the podium red bull they just oh i can't say that word strategically played a very good a very good game it didn't work out for them with the mechanical issues but I think we're going to have some very close racing in that middle order. And just looking at the times from the practices, there just wasn't much between them. So we've definitely expanded that middle order group, which is just going to be for some really good racing. Yeah, and and, and like looking looking sort of more uh, in the sort of here and now of, of everything that's going on in Formula 1, I mean, the... the some of the gossip that's been coming out of Austria, obviously there was the Red Bull protest about DAS, the dual axis steering that we spoke about in, in the, the quarantine catch-up series. Um, 
it is allowed. Red Bull do have it on their car, and it's unclear at the moment as to whether they used it during qualifying and uh, and the race. Mercedes did have it and were using it, and were not just using it to develop more uh, straight line speed. They were also using it to help manage their tire temperatures during the safety cars, which I thought was quite quite exciting. But coming out of Mercedes, the other thing that we got to talk about is they they, despite being a team that has the biggest bud one of the biggest budgets and spends the most money they're also pushing the hardest for a uh, or one of the one of the teams that's pushing hard for a budget cap aren't they sam yeah i think i think that all the teams are aware of the extent of how much money is being spent on in formula one and for for the constructors to to still be able to in in years in the future to still be able to participate in formula one there does need to be a budget cap and this will only if everyone is doing it and then it's it's definitely going to be favorable what was also was quite interesting is that obviously mercedes believe that they have one of the best um what is the word um what's it called when you have to, when they can use both systems where they can have petrol and electricity hybrid yeah that's it um yeah so mercedes believe that they have one of the best hybrid setups and so they're pushing to see if they can almost make formula one carbon neutral like really reduce the carbon emissions whether they want to go zero carbon emissions i'm not sure but it was really interesting to hear to hear them talk about that and when asked what the future of Mercedes looked like in F1, they were the two key points that they picked out on. So it's they're, they're clearly very forward thinking. And if they can push to get Formula One into a much more sustainable for the environment and also financially area, then it's looking like F1 will have a future which is really exciting and it won't be it we won't lose it so yeah and i guess i guess um the last thing that i think we can talk about from from you know the stuff surrounding racing that's come out from this weekend was vettel commented in in a press conference early on uh, in the weekend that he actually wasn't he he says he wasn't offered a contract from ferrari as with most of these uh, situations and scenarios, I believe that the truth is somewhere in between what's being told by both sides. Um, will that cause tension, do we think, for the rest of the season? I don't know. I think Ferrari are actually, personally, I think Ferrari are quite happy with the direction they've chose to go, especially considering that Leclerc put that car on the podium and Vettel managed to spin the car again uh, with a little bit of contact, but not something that should be spinning around. Sam, do you think there's going to be tension for the rest of the season? And do you think coming out and saying this and going against Ferrari will have an impact on Vettel's future? Um, I mean, it's, it, it, it was interesting just the way the weekend developed. It was almost like, oh, it was... To begin with, we thought that Vettel had actually dodged a bullet looking at how slow the Ferrari was. And we thought, well, Vettel's... Like this is the same car that's going to be used next season, and it looked like Vettel had actually done done the right thing in 
getting out there and not having a contract um then ironically in the race he was spun hit the contact between him and signs the guy who's replacing him at ferrari um so it, it who knows i mean he leclerc finished second he was further down further down the list it looks like ferrari made the right decision whether vettel is now going to be happy to be at ferrari um all weekend he was very critical of the car um he was surprised he only spun once um in his eyes he thought that was actually a bit of an achievement that he only spun once and not multiple times so it's not looking like he's having the best time at ferrari whether that starts to the tension and starts to like bubble over and we see some other sort of decision i think the the turning point will be when we see vettel and leclerc fighting for the same spot on the track and whether team orders are called and he listens or yeah i think i don't think we've seen the end of this one yet no i completely agree and um we kind of rattled through the weekend right now uh on this um on this podcast but we are we have also released a half hour uh, more in-depth look with Ollie, Sam and I at uh, about the weekend that's just happened and we go through qualifying and the whole race and pick out our favourite moments and, and sort of analyse the thing that have happened. So make sure that you give that a listen if you're if you're interested in, in the Formula 1 and, and uh, racing like that. That was the end of the J-Rod Sports Pod with me, James Robson, Ollie Dix, and our special guest host, Sam Corty. Thank you so much for listening to this really quite long episode of the J-Rod Sports Pod, and I apologise if the audio quality wasn't quite what you were expecting. I've had an absolute nightmare with editing, which I've just managed to figure out, so please bear with me as I'm figuring it out. But until next time, make sure that you subscribe, follow us on social media, and let us know if there's anything you want to hear.